Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. What inspires us to make a difference is often deeply personal and directly linked to our experiences. Something resonates with us on a deeper level, and it drives us to help and to invest in others. Siobhan Howard Davenport embodies this mindset and this spirit. She is the executive director of Crittenden Services, where she helps create opportunities for vulnerable girls in the Washington, D.C. area. Like many of the girls in her program, Siobhan was raised by a guardian, her amazing grandmother. Siobhan understands the personal and emotional challenges that many of the girls in her program face, and she understands the impact that that can have on a young girl's confidence. We'll talk about what she's doing to help ensure that others have the same opportunities that she did. Siobhan, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Delighted to have you. Really delighted. So let's start and talk about Crittenden. What is it and what do you do there? Well, Crittenden is such a special organization. It's been around for 132 years and we empower teen girls in the Washington region to overcome obstacles, make positive choices, and to achieve their dreams on their terms. So we have 300 girls in the district, 300 girls in Montgomery County from 6th through 12th grades, and each and every girl is valued as an individual. I like to say our secret sauce are our program leaders who create these sacred sister circles. The groups meet weekly throughout the school year. So as the group builds trust with one another, they build trust with the leader, we have a, a definitely a structured curriculum that we take the girls through. It's social emotional learning, trauma-informed, positive youth development. But as you can imagine, as that trust builds, we have to go off course many, many times because the girls will suddenly open up and talk about some of the experiences that they have. And so we can't just continue with goal setting if someone is talking about, um, for example, some sexual abuse they may have experienced. Mm-hmm. And and we're talking, you know, teenagers that are that are discussing this. So we have to go off course a bit. We have to circle around. We have to support that young lady. In many circumstances, we have to refer our girls to um, um, to mental health services, but um, but the girls fill this 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 space where they can be vulnerable, but also be supportive of one another. It's very very special. Yeah. How long does it take to get young girls comfortable sharing at that level? Because I would think to get to the point where you're sharing something that is so emotionally and maybe physically very difficult. How long does it take for them to get to that level of comfort? It really varies by group. 
the, the, the premise of the program is that the program leader spends the first four to six weeks really forming that group. But because of the way our girls come to us, a lot of them are recruiters themselves or our biggest ambassadors. So they're bringing their friends and uh, even family members along. So then there's that already that comfort level. But it really is the, the skill of the program leader to build that trust. So it, it varies from group to group, but I would say by January, we have very, we have all cohesive groups um, among our program. Yeah. Yes. When you and I talked um, before the interview, you talked about conflict resolution as being something that you spend a lot of time on. Talk about what you meant by that and why that's so important. Oh, absolutely. We're seeing with younger and younger girls starting in the sixth grade, the bullying, the cyberbullying. The girls talk about drama and they're very clear on that. Usually someone is what they term exposed on social media. So that person uh, will, will suddenly have whatever that secret is exposed to not just the, the girls in her school and the boys in her school, but throughout social media. Right. So there's, so there's a, a, a sense of um, helplessness that our, that our girls feel. And then it could be someone who's sitting next to them in their classroom who started this rumor. So we spend a lot of time on conflict resolution because we want the girls to understand that you can have civil disagreements with one another. You don't have to take it to anybody else. You can come to that person if you're having a problem with them. And we give them concrete ways in which they can communicate. A lot of our girls will tell us, the drama starts on social media, then it becomes face-to-face, -face, and then it's a physical fight. So we try to help them before it becomes on social media. But if we can't get to that point, we want the, to help them to resolve it in a positive way before it becomes a physical altercation. Yeah. Do you have any stories that you can share about sort of diffusing situations or sort of stopping things before they happen? The stories never cease to amaze us. So in sixth grade, we had one of our young teen girls who was exposed on social media by a boy in her class. So we're talking about 12-year-olds. And, and when you say exposed, you mean? He actually was um, messaging her and asking for nude pictures. And he was using the words, I love you. Then it became, I will hurt, harm myself if I do, if you don't do it. He was telling everybody what was going on, um, showing pictures to others in his class. And so the way we had to diffuse that is that the young lady finally shared this with the program leader because she was being tormented. Right. And so we had to, we had to get involved. We had to get the principal involved. Uh, we had to get counselors involved. His parents were involved. Her parents were involved. So in order to diffuse that situation, they had to um, separate them in class because they did share one class together. And then we had to let the school handle it, but then circle this young lady with the support she needed to, hold, to process this whole situation. So when I say that we keep seeing these trauma behaviors younger and younger just this just happened this fall to 12 to a 12 year old girl and here we are in the the movement of the me, me too empowerment of women speaking out against sexual harassment we have very famous men who are now being taken to task and it's just not something we expected to have to address with 12 year olds yeah 
Do you find with so much attention on the topic that young girls are more inclined to come forward or say, I think something happened or I think maybe this is wrong? I mean, at 12, it's it can be very confusing. Absolutely. And embarrassing. And embarrassing. Right, right. I think we're having more conversations within the group about what what is a healthy relationship. That's a very strong component of our curriculum. And we talk about uh, things, uh, verbal abuse, uh, as well as sexual abuse. So some of the young ladies, even in high school, don't understand that they're in an abusive relationship, that if your boyfriend is making you feel uncomfortable, forcing you to do something, and it, and it could be you know something that you don't want to do, that is a form of abuse. So we have, so we're, we definitely talk to our young ladies about healthy relationships. I think once they understand that they, that they could potentially be in an abusive relationship or someone they know is in an abusive relationship, yes, then they're more apt to come forward. But a lot of times, because we're talking about adolescence, their brains are still developing. They don't even understand what abuse really looks like. Can you talk a bit more about the core components of the program? You talk about, um, helping them understand what what a good relationship is versus a relationship that's not a good relationship. What are some of the other components that you're focusing on? Oh, certainly. Well, first of all, we're trauma-informed. So we come at the program with the sense that we meet each girl where they are, and we are non-judgmental of each and every girl. So we're, we're program leaders are trained to, to see the signs of trauma. So it's social emotional learning, which experts have said, this is the keys to success in school and within the workforce. And that's part of that conflict resolution, empowerment of standing up for yourself, uh, and not just yourself for other people. So we, we talk about all of that, but we are a sexual repro- reproductive health program as well. So we want the girls to understand their body and body parts and what, what is healthy. Uh, we, we're, because we're not non-judgmental, we believe in giving the girls all the information that they need to make informed decisions. And I'll give you an example. We have some, uh, we had a class of juniors, okay? So we're talking 17, 18-year-old girls who who did not understand that if they, they thought if they went into a pool, chlorine, went swimming after they had had sex, then they couldn't get pregnant. And it was just embedded. And it wasn't just one girl. I mean, you know, they're sharing information with one another. So we, you know, we feel as though we have to provide them with factual information. And that's part of the trust. They know that they can come to their program leader, come to our our organization and get the facts. And what we're finding is that we had, we do have a small number of young ladies that are pregnant or parenting teens, about 5%. So we have had, we have not had any secondary pregnancies, nor have we had any primary pregnancies as well, because now the girls understand uh, their, the information that's out there and then their ability to say no. Yeah. Right. And have that power that and we'll see it because we do pre-test and post-test. We do focus groups as well. We have 10 years of data and the girls will start off saying that essentially I, I may have felt forced to to do something that I did not want to do to by the end of the program or end of that program year saying I have I'm delaying having any type of sexual relationship because I have goals now. I want to go to college. I want a career and I want to wait to start a family until I am ready mentally, 
and social emotionally ready to have a family. Right, right. I mean, that's a huge testament to your success. You. Another element of your success, which we had talked about before, is that I believe you said a hundred percent of the girls that go through the program complete complete high school. Yes. And then go on to something else, different variations in terms of what that is. But talk a little bit about that other element of your story. Absolutely. We're extremely proud of the fact that we are intentionally in schools and communities where our program can make a big impact. And we're in schools where there's a 55% graduation rate and 100% of our girls do graduate. And the other statistic behind that is that 90% of our young ladies will continue their education in some form, whether it's a four-year, two-year program or a workforce development program. So to talk about that success, I think part of the strength of the program is the continuation. You can start as a sixth grader and continue through with us through 12th grade. So when we start with our sixth graders, we talk about goal setting. A lot of these young ladies have never you know, don't have any experience with that. They don't understand really what that means. They may say, well, I want to do better in school, but they have no idea what it takes to be better at school. So we sit down and we talk about what are your goals? What are your dreams? Okay, now let's break that down into small bits. Now you, the beginning of sixth grade, you said, well, I don't care anything about college. I don't know anyone who's attended the end of sixth grade, you're saying, I want to go to college. So how do we make that happen? Well, we make it happen by doing better in school. What does that mean? Well, showing up. We have a school now with 250 middle schoolers and 150 of them have absentee issues, right? So there's a disconnect there. So teaching uh, our young ladies in sixth grade that first you have to come to school. Now that you're in school, you have to pay attention. You have to develop a relationship with your teachers. We empower them to go to your teachers if you're having a problem. And I think that's universal with, with youth that, oh, I don't understand. I'm embarrassed. I don't want to take it to my teacher. Well, that's the person that you need to, you need to seek out and get that extra help. So we put together a plan. We empower our young ladies. We, with sixth graders in particular and seventh graders, we do different play uh, scene scenarios for them so that they can, I'll be the teacher. So you come to me and, then, oh, excuse me, Miss you know, Davenport, I have a question. Yes, what is your question? You know, so, so we do role that play. role play yeah. so that they can, you know, they can work this work this out. Okay, what's the worst case scenario? The teacher tells you they don't have any time for you. You know, what's the best case scenario? The teacher is very pleased that you took the initiative to come to them to to get extra help. So uh, so it's very imp- important part of the program for our young ladies, teaching them that we can have a big goal, but it's the small actionable steps that make the difference. Yeah. Talk about the impact on confidence and how you see that evolve from the time that they come into the program, sort of going through these exercises. What do you see? We see a tremendous amount of confidence. I have such, I, I feel like the proud mama of 600, 600 teen girls. So I have a wonderful story to share. Uh, one of our board members, who actually is the president of the Hispanic Heritage Foundation, invited us to their youth award ceremony. So we brought a young lady with us who is currently in the 10th grade. And she started with us last year in ninth grade, shy sweet, but not the kind of person who was just going to walk into a room and command it. Well, this young lady saw some of her local council members from Montgomery. She was from Montgomery County, 
went over to them, talked to them about the issues that were going on in her school, the solutions that she had. Can I talk to you further? Can I get your business card? And so her program leader and myself were standing over to the side and we're just looking at each other and smiling. Just look, you know, look at this young lady. And so she came to me and said, we have a leadership academy that we do every year. And she said, I would like to attend the Leadership Academy. I said, I expect to see you there. So it's just a proud moment when you can see that shift in the young ladies when they finally understand that their voices matter and people are listening to what they have to say. Your own story is really powerful, and I know it informs a lot of what you do here. Can you share with us a bit? I know you've written very openly and in a very vulnerable way about how you grew up. Talk about how that informs your work at Crittenden. Well, first I'll share that um, it's extremely difficult for anyone to be vulnerable. But I took a writing class. It was uh, a fictional class. And uh, just to just to give you a little bit of background, I was born to two teen parents who were unwed. And my paternal grandmother, which is a bit unusual, adopted me and raised me as her own child. So I knew both of my parents, but my grandmother was mama. I grew up in North Carolina, so it's a Southern <laughs> term of endearment. And so my mother passed away. She was killed in a car accident when I was 10 years old. And uh, my father was in and out of my life because remember, I'm living, you know, with his mother. mother, He just had emotional, mental issues, addiction issues, couldn't hold a job. So he was always in and out of my life um, in a negative way, really. It was my grandmother rescuing him from whatever situation he found himself. So when I was 14, I actually went to boarding school. And two months later, he moved into my home. And it was a shock that he would be there when I would come home for vacations and for the summer. To say that I was resentful is probably just the tip of the iceberg of how I felt. And then in my weekly phone calls home, my grandmother would tell me whatever it was he was doing. So, you know, I would be upset for her. Like, oh, why is he here? Why is he disrupting everything? So this continued on. Uh, When I was an adult, I made a decision to, I wasn't going to talk to my father anymore. And it was when my grandmother was dying and I called him to let him know uh, how dire the situation was. And he asked me, well, are you going to sell her house? And I was confused. So I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I really could use the money from my share of the house. So at that moment, I said, I can't do this anymore with him. You know, I'm, I've tried, but this is a person that I just can't have in my life any longer. So I didn't speak to him for 13 years. And during that time, I took a, a creative writing class. And it was my turn to distribute a story. And I had spent so much time reading everyone else's story, I hadn't written anything. <laughs> so, so I actually found out uh, through one of my father's friends and on Facebook, they messengered me and said, hey, could you please call? And I did and found out that he had passed away. Mm-hmm. And it hit me in a way that I never thought it would. I, I really mourned his loss and mourned the lost opportunity to connect with him on a deeper level. So I wrote about it, but I wrote it as a fictional piece because I never talked about my father 
ever, even with my children who are very small. And they would say, Mom, what about your dad? Where's our grandfather? And I would just say, Oh, he's not here. You know, he's, wow. yeah, it, it was very painful for me to talk about it. So I decided to write about our story because I thought it would be therapeutic for me. And I shared it with the class and I just made it clear this is a strictly a fictional piece. So we used to submit on a um, Friday night and our classes met Tuesday. So Saturday, I get this email from one of my classmates and we were extremely diverse group in ages, nationalities, race, etc. And so here is a, a young guy who had nothing to do with me. I'm a married woman with two children and he's young and uh, from Spain. And he said, I couldn't wait until Tuesday. I had to tell you that I love this story and how impactful it is to me. So that Tuesday, everyone who was critiquing the my story kept saying oh this seems so real we love it this is where did where was your inspiration and i just said oh you know just from different friends and cuz i just wasn't ready to reveal that it was actually right. my story so in writing about that and feeling so vulnerable about it um my teacher said to me i would love for this to be a a novel you know, I just I really want to hear more from you know, from this protagonist and, and her struggle with this you know difficult relationship with her father. So I kept trying to write, but I couldn't I, because I had not processed or sure. really healed. So I kept trying. I kept trying. And eventually what ended up happening was that I finally found peace with my father. And it was because I had I had to write him a letter. And I had to share with him just how his actions or lack of actions, how much it impacted me and how much I had wanted a relationship with him and was denied that relationship and that I really hoped he found peace. And a lot of it, I have to talk about my faith as well. Um, I had to use my faith to really forgive him and accept the fact that he just couldn't be the father that I wanted him to be. Yeah. So in doing that, I began to talk more about my father, learning that other people may have had similar situations. Uh, maybe it was a mother, maybe it was a father. Uh, I had one person who told me because I talked about the situation with my dad and, and not having the ability to, to, to reconcile with him, that he decided to call his father they hadn't spoken to in three years and that they had reconciled. Wow. So I began to understand that if I share, even though it's still a very vulnerable place, but if I share that story, then it may help others to find forgiveness while they have a chance to, to reconcile with that individual. So I did write about it. And I've had such a positive response. I had one young lady tell me, I had a book signing, and she said, she came at the very end, she said, I had to meet you. This is my story, and I'm trying to forgive my father. How can I forgive him? So we taught, you know, so she and I are still friends to this day, and I helped her find that forgiveness. Her father, fortunately, is still living. So um, so I, it's almost like a calling for me that yeah. if people can can come together and forgive one another, it it's such a powerful experience. And in some instances, you can't reconcile. And I do understand that. But if there's an opportunity to reconcile, I don't think that there's a greater feeling than having that forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. How much did your personal story sort of inspire you to take on the role that you have and how much of your personal story can you use in helping the young women in the program? 
Oh, absolutely. I think my personal story um, is has a huge impact on why I'm in the position that I'm in today, leading this organization. Uh, I often say that my grandmother was my program leader, and I'm a pr- Crittenden girl. That she was my <laughs> my trusted adult. She empowered me. She helped me to believe that my dreams, my goals, uh, you know, could with hard work. I could could achieve. So I'm the first person on her line. She has five siblings. So for her, she didn't attend college. My father did not, didn't graduate from high school. So I'm the first in that family line to have a, a graduate degree. You know, when I look back on it, it's because she helped instill that in me. It wasn't a matter of, will you go to college? It was, okay, what college are you attending? Right. <laughs> so when I think about our program and the similarities of, of how I grew up, I understand how these young ladies feel. A lot of our young ladies are raised by guardians, and we're very much aware of that. We never say, have your parents sign this form. We always say, have your guardians sign your form. And so I understand what it's like to to have teen parents who are not, for whatever reasons, may not be able to take care of you. You may be living with an aunt, an older sibling, you know, cousin, or a grandparent as well. So I understand what our young ladies are going through, but I also understand the power of having that trusted adult believe in you and and how that can propel you to heights that you may never have dreamed that you could achieve. You wrote in another piece, I think largely attributed to your amazing grandmother about faith without works. Talk about what you meant by that. What do you mean by faith without works? Having faith is a powerful experience, no matter what it is that you believe. And I think having faith outside of yourself, knowing that there's more to this universe than just you is extremely powerful. But at the same time, you still have to to do the work involved. We can wish all we'd like. (laughs) We can hope and pray all we'd like. But at the end of the day, it is the the work that you need to do. You're going to have to do, you're going to have to study. You have to write the brief. You have to in my case, um, you know, raise the money for the organization so we can continue our programming. But at the same time, as long as your 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 walk of faith is so important to me that I know I, I expect favor. I expect good things to happen. And and I, and so that's the attitude in which I approach everything. So, I mean, I use it throughout my day. Right. And, um, and it's just a powerful experience. It really is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like using all the tools that you were given. Right. Absolutely. It's one thing to have faith. It's another to actually employ all of your other skills to move your goal forward. That, absolutely. Yeah, that's really, that's great. Talk about maybe what you learned about yourself throughout this journey that has been really important to, to you, maybe something that surprised you, something that you learned about yourself having gone through coming to terms with your dad and coming to terms with the impact that anger um, was having on you. Maybe talk a little bit about what you learned. I learned so much on my, I call it a forgiveness journey for my father. And first of all, I, I never understood just how angry I was. And I had to come to terms with that. I thought that I had, quote unquote, made peace because I just essentially shut the door on my father. I didn't really think about him anymore. I never talked about him. But I didn't understand that I was just seething mm-hmm. under, under the, you know, right under the exterior. 
also, I didn't understand how forgiveness was holding me back. And when I say that, it held me back from really having meaningful relationships with other people. I had a very close friend who read that story and said, Siobhan, I've known you for years. I had a friend from high school that said, even in high school, I knew you were guarded, but I didn't understand why until I read the story. Wow. And so she's like, you know, you're always a good person, you know, a wonderful friend, but there was something there that I knew I couldn't push through that. So it was a revelation to me that I was walking around in life very much guarded and not having the genuine relationships with people that I think we as human beings crave. My husband probably knew more than anybody, you know, so that was different. He, he knew my story. He understood how I felt about my father. And as a matter of fact, over the years, he was the one that would say to me, hey, do you want to reach out to your father? And I'd say, no, I'm good. And so every once in a while, he knew, knew, right? He knew. So every once in a while, he would always reach out to me. As a matter of fact, uh, my father lived in Florida, in Tampa, and we had gone to Orlando. Um, I think we were there probably about two weeks, two weeks before he passed. Mm -hmm. And while we were in Orlando, my husband said to me, hey, do you want to reach out to your father? Maybe we could figure out a way to meet up with him. And I said, no, no, I had no idea that you know, two weeks later, I would lose him. So, um, so I just, I definitely learned that if you want true, meaningful connections with people, you're going to have to be vulnerable, you're going to have to show that side of yourself. And that it's important to be honest, I think I'm more in touch with my emotions. Now. Um, There's something about maybe being a Southern woman, that you don't want to admit you're angry. (laughs) You know, we're supposed to be polite, (laughs) sweet, whatever sweet is. I'm gentle. So, so, you know, so anger is just not in that, in that, in that recipe, right. For being a Southern lady. So, um, but I'm certainly much more in touch with my emotions and my feelings and I'm not afraid of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're, when you're carrying around that much anger, you don't even want to look behind the curtain, right? Yeah. You don't want to see the wizard (laughs) So without his pants on. So I never really, I never, dealt with that. So now if I, if I'm upset, if I'm angry, I take that time to be, well, well, why am I upset? Okay. Does this even make sense to be upset? Let's talk. I mean, I have these conversations with my, even with myself, but I think it's important to process those emotions in real time Mm -hmm. and understand, um, you know, yes, maybe there's a legitimate reason or maybe, maybe I'm irritated about something else and I'm blaming, you know, this person or this circumstance. So it's, I think I'm much more in touch with myself as a person now. Yeah, absolutely. So you, (laughs) I'm not even sure how to work this into the conversation because it takes us in a much more lighthearted area, but you took on a very interesting risk a number of years ago, and you threw your hat in the ring for the Mrs. Maryland pageant. But why, why that? I think people would be a little, you're beautiful, you're oh, gorgeous, you're in fact. Thank you. But why, but why that? <laughs> Well, and as you know, because I told you in the interest of disclosure, yes. I've always loved beauty pageants and yes. wanted to grow up to be Miss America. And Aww. that did not happen, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the fact that you did this, but I want you to tell me why. Absolutely. Well, growing up, Miss America was an institution, right? So we 
dropped everything to watch Miss America. And I remember when Vanessa Williams won and as an African-American woman, I identified with her and thought, wow, that's something I would love to do one day, right? So, but because of my grandmother and her practicality, it was all about education and having a career. So I just put it on the back burner, but I had just had my son and I was in the gym struggling with baby weight and I see a sign for the Mrs. Marilyn pageant. And I am a goal oriented person. And I thought, okay, this is something I've always wanted to do, but here's the, the plus side of it. I actually get to lose the baby weight because <laughs> I definitely don't want to be on a stage walking around with extra pounds. So I did. Uh, a friend of mine and I decided we were going to do it together. We had a lot of fun. But what was so beautiful about that pageant was that uh, I ended up winning Mrs. Maryland and then went on to nationals and just the the lifelong friendships that I continue to have. And this is back in 2008. You know, I shared a story about when I was announced as one of the top 12 finalists and all of these other women just found out that they lost. Right. So, but when I went backstage, you, you have just a couple of minutes to change. And I was surrounded by my, by my fellow pageant winners and they helped me. They took up one, one even gave me Miss, Mrs. Maine. Thank you. She gave me her earrings. Cause she said, I don't like the earrings you're wearing with this. And she gave, here, take mine. So she gave me her earrings and they just, they dressed me and made sure, but every hair was in place. So just to see that type of camaraderie, and these are all professional women. We had a a professor, there were lawyers, there was doctors, um, mothers. My roommate, um, Mrs. Utah, that we're friends to this day, had seven children and wow. <laughs> looked incredible. <laughs> so, and we just really, we really, and I'm sorry, it was Miss Idaho, pardon me. And we really bonded uh, over, you know, over that ex- shared experience. So it was something I would certainly recommend uh, to other women that if you miss that, that time for Miss America, because I think the cutoff is 20 26, that there's still hope. There is a Mrs. <laughs> America pageant <laughs> that you can fulfill your dreams. <laughs> That's amazing. So when you think about the impact that you hope to have on Crittenden and the impact that your story is having on others, talk a little bit about what you hope that will be. What I hope is that my personal story and my leadership at Crittenton will impact our teen girls, that if they can see someone who came from humble beginnings, I I often say, you know, we're all born a statistic. I was actually born a bad statistic. And if you look at the trajectory of a child who's born to a teen mother, it's, it's not a good trajectory. Usually they repeat that pattern, addiction issues, et cetera. It's not a pretty picture. So I like to say that it doesn't matter where you start in life. What matters is that you believe in yourself and your dreams. The harder you work, the luckier you are. I love to say that as well. And, and to show them that it's possible, not just, not just to see someone, because I, I think in society we can look at a very successful person and think, wow, I wish I could be Oprah Winfrey, but we have no idea, you know, exactly what she did to reach 
the heights of success. But what I want to show the young ladies is there's different levels of success. We don't all have to be, you know, social media stars or, or Instagram models with this generation, right? There's success in, in career choices and being role models to, to other young women and teens as well. So I'm really proud of the fact that our alum, alumni all come back. And they love being a part of the the current generation of teen girls and 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 being positive role models for them. So that's what I would hope that that my uh, leadership would show our young ladies that anything is possible, but we do have to work hard and we have to have goals and actionable steps to achieve those goals. But just because you start in one place doesn't mean you have to end there. You write your ending. No one else can do that for you. And we're here. We're here to give you the tools to write your ending. Yeah, that's great. One last question. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra, maybe something you tell your kids, maybe something you tell the girls in the program. What would be yours? The, the harder you work, the luckier you are. And yet you can make your own success. And I think that that it empowers individuals to understand that it's not fly-by-night luck. Uh, it's not fly-by-night success. I, I just had this conversation yesterday with someone that we were talking about this, the instantaneous culture that we currently live in. Right. And we don't understand that this person stayed up late at night building their business, studying for exams. And and then we get to see the success and we get to applaud them, but we don't understand what it took to get there. I think our young people in particular need to understand that they can achieve their goals, but again, the harder they work, the luckier they'll be. Yeah, that's really, it's lovely. Oh, thank you. Siobhan, thank you so much. Oh. Really inspiring. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And nice to see you. you in person. Thank you. Nice <laughs> to see you too. To learn more about Siobhan, you can visit the show notes for this episode, episode 85. You'll also find all of our past episodes on She Said, She Said at the website, www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. I'd also love to hear from you. You can contact me on the contact link on the website or send me an email at laura at lauracoxkaplan.net. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this growing community of inspiring women who are having a tremendous impact on others and on the world.